This is the Engineering Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Avi Noda. In this episode, I speak with Jonathan Biddle, Director of Engineering Effectiveness at Wayfair. Jonathan first stepped into a platform role focused on Python, and since then, his teams have had repeat successes and subsequently grown in size and scope. We reflect back on this journey, which he compares to being a part of a startup rocket ship, and then dive into his theories for what has actually driven his success. I learned a lot from Jonathan about applying concepts like the diffusion of innovation, as well as signs that things aren't working and what to do about it. I hope you enjoy listening. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Really excited to chat. Yeah, happy to be here, Avi. The theme of our conversation today is around driving adoption of developer platforms and I think you've been on such an interesting journey building different platforms, so really excited to dive in. I know that your journey really started with the Python platform team at Wayfair. This was your first time working on a platform team. So I'd love to hear about how you came into that role and why did Wayfair form this team in the first place? I never actually applied to work at Wayfair. I came in through an hire sort of situation back in summer of 2015. And I landed on a team that was a lot of fun, uh, marketing engineering. We were building, I ended up like focusing on the notification systems there. And I also established myself as a bit of like a resident Python expert. Uh, Python's probably the language I've easily used the most in my career as a software engineer. And there was a point at which Wayfair recognized a small but important subset of its systems were running in Python. We largely productionizing data science models through Flask. And those systems were supported for the most part by volunteer efforts from other teams. It didn't really have a like a, a, a real strong, robust like platform team to kind of own and operate those things and recommend best practices and drive it forward. Most of the systems at the time were PHP with a small subset being like Java and C Sharp. So there's a point where Wayfair recognized kind of needed, you know, there was there was like a, a bunch of revenue and value flowing through these systems and it needed to take it a bit more seriously and intentional. And so when, when there was a meeting called together, I was at the time leading a bunch of folks under marketing engineering, folks on notifications, being kind of a, the Python expert of that group. We had one Python system that we owned there. We were discussing, what do we do? Do, you know, do we form a platform team for Python? You know, where does this go? And I remember them describing the job and I'm like, oh my God, I think that's my dream job to like help a company figure out how to do Python well and actually, you know, see it become like a, you know, a, a tool that was available to anyone. So in the course of that meeting, I kind of like raised my hand. I was like, if you are looking for someone to start said team, I would en- really enjoy being that person. So it was a bit of a gamble. Uh, it was going from, you know, leading all of notifications to starting a brand new platform team, something I had no experience doing. So starting totally from scratch. But that was that was the start of the journey. That was, I think, at the beginning beginning of uh, 2017. I'd love to hear, you know, as you describe that story, one kind of common thread when I talk to a lot of platform and DevX leaders is they're all really, really passionate about the domain in which they work in. And not to say that other engineering leaders aren't as passionate, but I think it's a little bit different. And the way you told that story, I'd love to know, you know, what was it that got you so excited? Like, why did shifting into that sort of role attract you and excite you so much? I didn't start development platforms. That team existed 
like long before I joined Wayfair. My team was Python Platforms, which was one of the teams within development platforms when I kicked it off. I think that the team early on was essentially a, called a little bit of a grab bag of general purpose tooling and things that fell between the lines of all the teams out there. And it just, well, who's going to own that? Well, development platforms can own that, <laughs> you know? I don't think initially it was really looked at as a, like a key investment area to drive developer productivity across the entire organization. It was just that thing is used by a lot of engineers, doesn't have a clear owner, give it to that team. I think the really cool part of the journey was actually playing a key role in turning that team into a team that's a, a very key investment that is has like very broad, high leverage impact across the entire engineering organization and ultimately helps the business get more business returns on its like engineering investments. So that that transition happened while I was on the team. It didn't happen overnight, but it was a fantastic journey to be a part of. That's awesome. Well, excited to get into it. And I love the way you kind of talked about how you led that shift from being, well, analogy I like to, to use is kind of shifting from just being a cost center, right? Like, kind of platforms just maintaining a bunch of stuff to it's not really a profit center but it's really a multiplier on overall developer productivity and should be driving business you know dollar returns sounds like you thought of it think of it similarly yeah if i can use my analogy briefly on this one it would be if you think of software engineers software engineers generally don't provide any like direct business value you know for in wayfair's case we don't pay software engineers to like handle the shipment of goods and bring them to like a customer's house or some or take orders or anything like that. Instead, they're building these systems that allow us to scale and be a successful business, you know, with many, many more customers than you could without that technology, innovation, automation. And you know, can you think of software developers almost like working on this meta layer of the business? They don't provide any direct business value, but when you use them well, your business can like scale way higher than you could if you were say a catalog that was being mailed to people's houses that then had this kind of like manual bookkeeping process to actually ship the goods. Like that's that's just not going to get you very far. I look at platform teams as almost like this meta layer on top of the meta layer. And so their leverage gets even larger. But what happens at the same time is the further you remove yourself from ultimately the revenue generating, the value creating activity that the business does, the more unclear it is how you actually apply that leverage to create business value. And that's, so I look at any platform team as ultimately what you're trying to do is help the business scale, be more successful. And you're in a position of immense leverage, but you're also in a position of immense ambiguity. And, and it's not clear how and where you can find opportunities to drive the creation of business value. But if you can find those, it's, it's incredibly impactful. Well, I love that analogy and description and kind of, I think, leads into the beginning of, I think, the, the story of your journey. So, you know, you had mentioned to me once you came into this role, you, you know, you volunteered, got the role, you had to start thinking about how to run a team like this. And you mentioned to me, you sort of thought of it like a startup. Can you share just that, the early beginnings and what you mean, like what you meant by thinking of it as a startup? Absolutely. So part of it was almost born out of necessity. You know, me never being on an infrastructure or platform team before and being faced with like, okay, well, now I'm responsible for this, this team, which was just three of us at the start succeeding and, and actually like not being 
dis- dismantled in three, six months, you know, we had to figure out how we actually create value. And so what I did was I reached for what I was most familiar with, which was startup entrepreneurial thinking. And I'm like, well, you know, if we look at the team, we've, we've got potential customers, we've got, you can think of it as like kind of investors. And if we don't, you know, satisfy enough customers to, you know, satisfy our investors, we're, we're in trouble. And the more I thought of it in that lens, I'm like, okay, actually, I think a lot of that kind of like startup entrepreneurial thinking still applies. It's just that it's a different incarnation of like almost the exact same systems problem. So we started to look at that way and almost think of it very, very like, how do we, how do we create a startup? How do we get this thing off the ground? How do we make sure that we're providing sufficient value to justify our existence or hopefully our growth? And that led us to this just general thinking of like, okay, well, right now at step one, we don't really know where, like where we can provide the most value. We have a ton of assumptions and we have a bunch of potential users and, you know, people who are currently using Python, people who might want to use it. And so how do we, how do we find out like where we can actually provide value? And our answer was, well, let's get really close to them. Let's like literally partner with them and, 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 and just like find a team and say, Hey, we want to help you with your project. Just like free engineer showing up. And while we're doing that, we're seeing like, what sucks? <laughs> you know, what could we do? What could we make a little easier? And just through that, getting super close to the, the customer, so to speak, a whole bunch of opportunities just showed up. We're like, oh, we can make that better. We can make that better. That really is awful when you have to go and do it. You know, like bringing in a new dependency into the environment was a rough experience. All of those things created this essentially like really, really firsthand experience driven backlog of where we could provide value. And that was what drove a lot of our initial work. It was admittedly fairly short-sighted. It was like, how do we get value out the door in the next two months so that you know, you know, we can show people, hey, look, this is getting better now that we exist. And we had a way of thinking of it, which was which we called like transactional value versus recurring value. So transactional value would be I go and I sit with your team and I help you debug something. That value is created once, that team is super grateful, doesn't really help anyone in the future. Recurring value would be, hey, people keep on running to this problem over and over and over again. I'm going to give them a library that they could just use. And you know, if, it, if that works well, no one really has to deal with this again. What we would found early on is we would do transactional value creating activities to one, demonstrate you know, the, the value and the expertise we bring to the organization and use that to drive or identify opportunities to drive further long-term recurring value opportunities. And that was like, it was a bit of a uh, cyclical effort where we were not going to make long-term investments until we validated it with that like transactional value of just getting really close and making sure we're solving a real problem. Well, I first of all, I love that model of transactional versus recurring. And to go off this startup analogy, I can think of you know startups that are launched in this exact way where you know they kind of begin as a service they go out provide a service to some market segment or customer base so then identify a common pattern or problem and then end up creating like a solution or product to that brings in recurring revenue instead of transactional services revenue so it sounds remarkably similar i really like it yeah and i honestly think like when you really take a step back it to me it still feels like it's the same problem i would actually say the biggest difference is startups have the benefit of 
observable revenue. <laughs> you know, like you have a bank account, it is shrinking. <laughs> and you can see when you put more money in the bank and you can see when it kind of evaporates from the bank. And that gives you this very clear, real feedback loop on how you're doing at creating value. Businesses generally don't have that. I think the same dynamics still exist. If you don't have buy-in from the organization because you're not creating value, eventually that team probably isn't going to exist anymore. So like that, you're, you still have like the, the runway concept as a team. Uh, you just lack the easy observable measurement of revenue and runway and a bank account. And so you kind of have to, I think you have to like supplement the lack of that with very intentional thinking of where are we creating value? How is this helping the business succeed? What do our customers think of our product? That kind of thing. To remind a little bit, I'm curious as we talk about it, a lot of platform teams we talk to, you know, have to work really hard to even kind of become a team. And I mean, you certainly had to, it sounds like had high stakes to kind of prove the value of your team. But in the eyes of the leaders who kind of allowed your team to come into existence and take a shot at this, I mean, were they just viewing this as a bet? Is that, I mean, is that how you set? Like, they're just making a bet. We have 90 days of runway to like prove this wasn't a mistake. So I think my ambitions were a little higher than I think the initial, and the initial investment was more or less like, hey, can you stabilize this kind of like edge case of Python system? I think there were like three servers, sorry, 13 services or so that were running in production. And they're like, can you create like a nice little foundation layer for that? My ambitions were, I want Wayfair engineers to feel like they can reach for Python when it feels like the right tool for the job. And that to be a an accessible and non-controversial tool. And I, I thought if that can happen, Python's actually a pretty strong match for Wayfair's kind of cultural strengths, you know, very high in pragmatism, enjoying kind of like speed of iteration, those types of things. It's a it's a really good fit. And that was kind of like my ambition. So I used that initial investment to say, I think we can go a lot further than just creating stability in this space. I want to see it unlock a bunch of new value. That makes sense. Well, I want to continue asking you about this journey then. So you know, early on, you were balancing the, the transactional with some recurring. And I mean, how did this begin to evolve? You know, some of the questions I have, like, what, what were the larger goals you started to set? Or what were the larger projects, maybe the, those recurring solutions that you guys set your sights on as you kind of moved out of that very early initial phase? Yeah. So initially, our ambitions were just make Python. This is actually our mission. Literally, our, our, our documented mission statement was make Python at Wayfair incredibly accessible, low effort, and high output. That was where we started. We quickly, I think, with our early adopters, started to see a lot of success there. And then we wanted, we had to kind of like move the goalpost for ourselves a little bit. At the same time, one thing that was happening at Wayfair was we had a large monolithic PHP ecosystem and the deploy congestion at this time is like a couple thousand software engineers trying to get their deployments out to a single shared monolith was getting pretty congested, like a log jam of deployments trying to get out to production. And we saw that as an opportunity to, well, you know, we have this new ecosystem, this new option we're building, you know, over here, we could use this to give teams a kind of a, an alternate option to so that they, they can continue to release business value because that deploy congestion is creating some sizable risk. So then our goalpost moved to essentially establishing ourselves as a, as, a, as a beachhead for decoupling from the monolith. That ended up 
you know, becoming a pretty big opportunity for the organizations, what led to a lot of growth of Python, I think in like 2018 in particular, you know, even, even led to, I will say today, the, the majority of like Wayfair's production systems even today are still Python because we created such a surge of adoption early on. I don't know if that's like, that might not be widely known, but like Wayfair has like, it's probably one of the lesser known, like big Python companies. We have many, many production Python systems by a few measurements, the most used language in the organization. So we essentially like accomplished that. We gave that deploy congestion issue a timely release valve. Then we said, well, you know, let's, let's take it to the next step. Let's become, you know, Wayfair, let's lead Wayfair's developer productivity transformation, because that's something we're really passionate about. That's really what these teams are doing. At this time, our, our scope is expanding beyond Python. We're starting to look at C Sharp, Java, PHP, just anything where we can help developers become more productive. That's when we rebrand to developer acceleration and just started to go after anything that could unlock developer productivity, could take away friction from developers, workflows, those types of things. And then today, as you know, we're continuing that journey, I would say our mission has evolved to making Wayfair a world-class destination for like global engineering talent. We want people to come here and feel like it's just the best developer experience. They feel really well enabled. They feel like they can bring an entrepreneurial spirit, you know, to technical problems. And that's that's our aspirations at this point. Is like we want to make this like a standout engineering shop where you can come here and just really enjoy solving like real business problems and bringing that kind of engineering perspective and talent to the table. Well it's really an inspiring journey and to say it jokingly, you're, you're like a startup that's made it because I mean, I think the journey you've been on of that's what it feels like. <laughs> yeah, you, you started with this very specific, you know, scope and sort of ambition and to, to continually expand that scope and charter to what you're doing today. I think that's what every platform team dreams of. So that's awesome. And we'll loop back around to kind of what you guys are doing currently. But I want to go back then to that early success. You mentioned to me, you know, it felt like a resounding su success. It felt like a startup that took off. And then you mentioned how you really, you know, asked yourself, you know, what are the theories that led to that success? And I think I'm hoping that's what we can share with listeners today is, you know, what are the lessons they can apply to have the same success wherever they are on that journey? I'd love to start with, you mentioned reading Crossing the Chasm and then Diffusion of Innovation. I've sort of partly read both of these books. Can you share more about kind of your, you know, view on the journey you went on, you went on and particularly around adoption? Definitely. So yeah, I we were this is coming from a time when we were seeing a lot of success. It did, it absolutely felt like the closest I will probably ever experience to being at a startup that just takes off. That's that's literally what it felt like. And I was not comfortable with the fact that if someone said, what, what would, did you do? Like, what was your strategy that really worked? And I'd be like, oh, we trusted our instincts. <laughs> it's like, that's terrible advice, <laughs> you know? And I, it's so, all like, I wanted to understand it much better than that. I want to have an answer. If someone to say like, what were you doing here that was working so well? And so as part of that, I, I wanted to do some reading and really, really tease apart what part of this strategy was working. And that like, Crossing the Chasm, I didn't actually read it. It was on my list of like books to read. And it was one that I was thinking, oh, this might be pretty familiar. You know, 
the technical adoption curve. And that's basically what happened here. And before I read a book, I like to read the Wikipedia article because reading books is very expensive from a time standpoint. And then I saw that Crossing the Chasm was basically a modern telling and take on an, a book written in the, in the 60s called Diffusion of Innovations. And I'm like, well, which one do I read? And, and I landed on, I'm just going to go to like, go to the source, go to the one that, you know, was this kind of uh, the nucleus for all of this. And I'm, I'm happy that I did. It's a, I'll, I'll put it out there. It's a bit of a difficult book to get through. <laughs> it's errors on the academic side, but there are some sections that were like seeing the matrix level of clarity of that is the exact pattern that we saw take place and seeing how, yeah, that's why our approach was working here. And we are like, after going through that book, it became so clear, oh, these are the dynamics that are happening. And I felt very comfortable that we could then take that knowledge going forward. And we have since then to figure out why isn't something being adopted? Why is something working really well? And th this started to feel like, okay, now I have a story I can tell. Now I can go to another team and tell them, if you're struggling with this problem, you know, adoption-related problem, here are some ways to look at that that can help you better understand what's going on. So I'd love to get into those. So let's say you're a platform team fairly early, kind of where you guys are, you know, just kind of formed, you've kind of gotten past that proving point. You've maybe, you're working, maybe started working on some new tooling, no users yet. How can you apply your theories and, and learnings in that sort of scenario? I think the three key concepts to, to understand is what the adoption curve means. And that's basically early on when you don't have a lot of users, you're looking for a particular type of user who is interested in a particular type of product. You know, if you think about like, use the iPhone as an example. When the iPhone first came out, it didn't even have copy and paste. It was very limited in features. And there was a bunch of holdouts, you know, I would actually call myself included, or kind of like, oh, I'm gonna wait a few generations for this to kind of mature a little bit. And then I eventually bought one. But there's like people who are just like, oh my God, it's like, this is amazing. They're willing to spend the high price. And they're okay with like a bunch of features being absent. That's not for everyone. And I, and I think there's like, you have to kind of just recognize that that's the stage that you're in. Don't worry about the, the people who are waiting for the more mature product. Your job right now is to not satisfy their needs. Your job is to find your like your innovators, your people who are in who like fit the archetype of someone who's ready to try something, be the first over the line, like that kind of thing, and solve their needs first. And you'll worry about the other group later. So that's one thing is like be aware of the adoption curve. Happy to go into more details on that in a moment. But I want to also talk about what makes people fit into that like earlier segment. A lot of it comes down to like their risk appetite. So there's a there's a bunch of theory you can read on this. I won't go into all the details, but for example, if they perceive like high relative advantage, they can look at this and say like, that makes my life a lot better. That makes them good for that early adoption phase. If they have high expertise, that makes them great. If they perceive the situation as untenable, <laughs> like, like iPhone probably isn't a good example of this, but if they're like in, you know, this was actually applicable in our situation, we didn't even realize this, but we were going after teams who were like, we're having, we're struggling to reach our quarterly goals over and over because of deploy, deploy friction. They were the teams that we actually partnered with first because they just saw that, you know, we're, we're in a really bad situation and we need to find a way out. And that can make someone great. That combined with high technical expertise puts them squarely in your innovator. You're like that first group of users category. If you're, if you end up targeting the wrong group, what it can often feel like is 
you're trying to sell and sell and sell someone to go and use a thing. And they're just like not interested. Then there's like the qualities of the thing you're trying to sell them as well. So that one gets really interesting. There's like, how easy is it to understand? Can you try it out first? How easy is it to actually implement? Do the benefits like, are they observable? So in some cases, like an innovation can be fantastic, but the benefits just aren't observable. And you'll see some people adopt it and then abandon it because they, they weren't able to actually see the value as creating, even if it was creating real value. So there's a bunch of things that actually cause adoption to stick that are on like the solution side and being avail- being aware of like what those look like as well. You piece those three things together and you can start to be very intentional about, well, what do I need early on to satisfy the needs of that really early group? And then how do I apply the adoption curve to kind of know where I need to transform my thing over its journey? I love that model and way of thinking about the the initial beginnings of building out a solution or platform tool. I'm curious, this is a question someone asked me last week. How do you think about personas? You know, like even for, let's say, a Python script CLI tool you're building, right? You, you probably have to think about, okay, there's 30 different teams doing Python and they actually work in a little bit different ways. Did you have to make was it difficult? Like, how did you navigate kind of really pinning down? Did you have to just focus on some teams instead of you know other teams? How did you kind of navigate that? Or what would your advice be? To start, we, we do have some personas. We had them more in the beginning. And then we ended up landing on a concept that I, I got from a book called Let My People Go Surfing, just like a Patagonia leadership book. Uh, it's a fun read. Their concept in there I really liked called Core Customers. And from what I remember, the gist of it is, you know, when they design a backpack. You know, I I have a Patagonia backpack. I use it to go on a train into the city <laughs> carrying a laptop. <laughs> They're not designing that backpack for me. You know, even though I might make up a larger percentage of their customers, they're designing it for someone who's like taking that backpack like over the Appalachian Trail or something like that <laughs> and having it in the rain, it gets muddy, it gets dropped, like all those types of things. And they they establish that as their core customer that they're designing for. I happen to be like a, a happy byproduct of building, building a good product for that core customer. So we started to borrow that same concept and we established our core customers as like, call it like senior engineers, people who have like, they, they've kind of been around the block a few times. They know what they're doing. They can be trusted with a sharp tool. And we want to like, look at what their needs are, what type of documentation they need to be effective and solve for their needs first. And then help others close any gaps to kind of like get to that place. So if someone's unfamiliar with Python or Java or anything like that, how do we get them to the point where they are skilled and knowledgeable in that system versus building something that's like a safety scissor version of the of the solution? Like I think like that's a that's a trap you can fall into unless you really cement the idea of like these are the core customers we're going to solve their problems in a somewhat uncompromising way, and then figure out how we can get other people to make that journey to uh, to that archetype. Got it. So building the the professional grade tools, not the box store uh, grade, grade tooling. I think if I remember correctly, the idea was if uh, Patagonia was to start building backpacks for me, they alienate the their core customers because it's stopped, like the quality goes down. And then eventually the reason that I like it starts to slip as well and they lose everyone. I think that was like, that was the theory in general. No, that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious. So as you start to get users adoption of your system, 
And you mentioned earlier this sort of program where you had people on your team sort of embed with other teams. But I'm curious, besides that, what were some of the feedback gathering mechanisms you had? I mean, were people just coming to you, shooting you emails, or were you doing, I don't know, what were you doing? (laughs) A lot of things. So that embedding with other teams actually became a really key part of our, just how we ran the department. We would generally try to have at least one person from the platform team. It just contributing to to a like called a feature teams work, gathering perspective, helping maybe show them how to use a new tool, uh, and creating. But you know, one of the most important things, creating a really tight product feedback loop for us to say like, where is it rough? You know, what could we do to improve their situation? We also go out and do customer interviews. But I find like while we do get great feedback from quote unquote customer interviews. There's nothing quite like li- like walking in their shoes for a quarter. You'll see what what it's really like, what's what's really a problem. Sometimes you'll see things that they like people might assume are not addressable and they totally are. And and unless you're actually there living that life, you would just assume that like you would not realize no one would complain about that specific thing that creates a bunch of friction. So there's always uh, every time we do these, we we do a lot of kind of like documentation around them and what are we learning. There's always, I think, something interesting that we take away from those engagements. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was talking a few weeks ago to a former leader at Netflix, and he used the phrase like a pebble in your shoe. Like, you know, if you just go ask developers what's painful or what's slowing you down, they they might say one thing. But if you were to actually observe how they're working and experience it, you would find these kind of hidden pebbles in the shoes, so to speak. So that makes a lot of sense. Would love to ask you've talked about adoption. And and so I imagine that you were tracking adoption type metrics. Like, I don't know what that looks like, but I'm curious. I'd love to know what types of signals or metrics you tracked to understand your own success and how those metrics or signals maybe have evolved over time. Yeah, there's there's a few different signals we've looked at over any product's journey. And that is adoption is a key one. You know, like what it's worth noting that you can't just say, oh, every single engineer, let's say you have 5,000 engineers in a company. Not every single engineer at the company might be a potential user of the thing you're building. That's uh, we, we borrow this term from, I think, like the, the business side of things called a, a serviceable available market, which basically describes like these are the users who could like they, they, they are legitimately potential users of your thing. And, and if you had a, like I, the way I think of it is like, the relative advantage is there if they were using it instead of whatever they're using today, hopefully, that would mean that their their effectiveness goes up. So having a, a at least a broad stroke concept of what that number is, what is your what is your SAM or SAM? And then looking at, well, how many people are using it today? In some fashion, we do try to measure adoption. That percentage will land you somewhere in the adoption curve. So if what we do is if we're in the the first 2.5% of, of adopters. That, you know, following the, the, the diffusion of innovations theory, you're dealing squarely, squarely with the innovators. At that point, what we try to do is say, okay, look, right now, it's about testing assumptions. It's about trying to surface assumptions that we aren't even aware that we're making and making sure that what we're doing is actually creating value. What does adoption of this thing even mean? Does it like, does it improve their ability to deploy code or reduce some friction in some way. And how do we how do we measure that? And so this is like where we actually like try and figure a lot of that out. And then we, we get to the beta phase. That's like 
we we call it a beta, but we're like very intentional about what that means. That's like the next 13.5%. So that brings us up to 15% of users using it. And at that point, what we're trying to do is like stabilize it, refine it, get it ready for general availability. And we have a very intentional take on this. So once it's GA, you're just trying to like drive adoption over the course of like to 100% as close as you can get to that SAM. And just looking at the, the percentage of users who have like started using the thing, you can get a lot of understanding of where you're at in that journey. In addition to that, like I said, it's it's I do think it's very important to make sure that you are aware of what does adoption of this thing actually mean in terms of value? Because adoption alone is not necessarily the creation of value. It's a, it's a, it can be a good proxy of value, but you should be aware of, oh, if they're using this tool, they should deploy faster. Are we actually measuring that? Can we can we differentiate that from teams who haven't used it yet? That kind of thing. How do you measure the the quality side of you know aside from adoption? Are you measuring like CSAT scores or MPS things like that? Yeah, we definitely we do have MPS scores for a few of our products. Like we have a, a developer portal uh, is is one of the things that we offer, and we try to keep tabs of like how is uh, how are people feeling about it, you know, and and keeping track of like an MPS score there. We also do a lot of I think interviews, and we're starting to do more with like a sentiment focus survey. I was uh, just listening actually to your podcast with Shopify about how they take an approach on that. And so I think we have a lot of opportunity there to get even more mature with how we start to like understand and and observe shifts in general happiness of engineers and and how they feel, you know, about the tools that they have at their disposal. So there's some broad stroke stuff we can do with surveys. I think there's also a lot that we've always done with just pull someone aside, have a 20 minute conversation with them, get their feedback, document it, share it. Well, changing themes a little bit, when we were speaking before this the show, you had mentioned this trade-off between organic adoption and mandated adoption. And you mentioned that you think early on you shouldn't force people to adopt your tool. I'm sure there are some cases where you would want to force or mandate adoption, but can you share more about kind of your opinion on how adoption should occur in an organization? Yeah, definitely. Especially because this is a this is a concept that's not on the Wikipedia overview of the book, but I think is extremely relevant for platform teams. In the Diffusion of Innovations book, it contrasts what it calls centralized and decentralized diffusion. Uh, and, the, and the gist of it is this, centralized diffusion. And you can think of this as like, you have a team that basically says, hey, all of you out there, you're using this tool from now on. You have two weeks to like comply. <laughs> you know, that's that's centralized diffusion. Decentralized diffusion is like the free market approach. It's like, hey, we got this tool. Hope you like it. You know, you know, and you send an email out to the organization and see who starts to use it. That's very decentralized. There are trade-offs between the two. Neither one is correct or incorrect. You lean to centralized when you essentially have ideally low levels of uncertainty, centralized expertise. And if consistency is important, you basically have no other choice. If you need to have everyone kind of like rowing in the same direction, you have to centralize. If that's not important and, and you, you can afford to have, you know, kind of people adopting things at different times and inconsistencies are okay, then decentralized can be a good option. In that case, it's like if uncertainty is high or you have strong decentralized expertise, like all of my potential adopters, you know, are very smart, capable software engineers as, you know, they often are then decentralized diffusion becomes like a really appealing choice. What you get from that is higher degrees of innovation, generally stronger local optimums. You get people who kind of like 
lean in on autonomy. Autonomy feels great. They use the tool. They maybe contribute a feature back if it's like a, if you have like an inner source style contribution option, and you just end up with like a better, more effective solution at the end of the day. So decentralized diffusion has a lot of value. An example of where we've applied this is, you know, there was a point in time when we migrated or made a decision to migrate our source control provider. That's definitely not a thing you want to decentralize. You don't want to have people confused about where source code is. So there was like, we went through a centralized decision-making process. And once a decision was made, we tried to roll it over to 100% adoption as quickly as we possibly could. It still took a little bit because that's a big migration, but that's an example of where centralized adoption is really useful. With decentralized, which is, I'd say, the majority of our projects, we're looking for people to choose to adopt something because they see it as so valuable. That's a great signal back to us that the thing that we're getting people to start to use is, is actually solving real problems for them. If something's not compelling enough to get them to use it, then maybe we should go back to the drawing board. Maybe we should revisit some of our assumptions and try and figure out why aren't people using it? How could we make it more valuable? How can we make it cheaper? That kind of thing. I love that. And it kind of made me think of the, the difference between bottoms up product-led startups and like enterprise software, because enterprise software by its nature is usually kind of mandated adoption once a company purchases it. And not going to name any names, but you know, a lot of enterprise software has a reputation for not being the, the most delightful to, to the end users. So with your model and the approach of decentralized adoption, I'm like you're saying, I think you get much better signal and and probably just much better ongoing accountability and signal around upholding a high bar of quality. Yeah, and if I could maybe add one more piece of nuance there is you don't have to go all one way or the other. And in fact, you don't even have to stick to one or the other. And, and the thing that we generally like to recommend is early on in, in a like a building out a solution, lean in on decentralized tools and then if you can get to the point where like 50% of your addressable market is using the thing, pivot more towards incentivized or maybe even mandated to close that gap. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it can be expensive for to, to maintain like a proliferation of options out there. And I think it's, you know, to mitigate some of those costs, like collapsing redundant solutions becomes very appealing. So and like we you are a an organization, you can lean in on that. Just don't do it early on. Leave it for the end to just kind of get over the finish line or explore other options like allowing people to take ownership of their local solutions versus like having, say, a centralized team managing something that only 10% of the organization is using. You kind of shift that burden to those teams. so They have like a natural incentive to, to get off when the timing's right. So wait till the end to bring down the hammer. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't start with the hammer if you can avoid it, unless the situation requires it. Well... In the startup community, people always talk about the best places where lessons are learned and knowledge shared is in learning about the failures of startups. And so I'd love, I know you mentioned that, you know, you've done this for a long time, launched a lot of things. So you've seen a few cases where adoption either failed or, or fell short. So I'd love to hear maybe just, you know, one of those lessons or stories and what you can kind of take away and what listeners can take away from that experience. We have quite a few where either adoption fell short or just struggled uh, and languished much more than we would expect. We're going through one right now with a, um, which I can give some details on, where we essentially have a tool for spinning up ephemeral integration testing environments for Kubernetes. 
And, you know, when, when this tool is running, it's like, it helps teams go a lot faster. It's really great. You know, this is the kind of thing you'd expect to take off like wildfire. And it's like, it's kind of like it got, you know, a few people onboarded and it kind of plateaued and we're like, why, why aren't more people using it? And so we're like in the process of, of debugging that right now where the diffusion of innovation kind of concept becomes super helpful is you can look at like, well, like what's actually getting in the, in the way of adoption here. A naive approach could say like, oh, it's just awareness. If we made more people aware of it, send out a whole bunch of emails or like ping Slack a whole bunch of times, then we get like more adoption. That's not necessarily true. Awareness is just like the very first step in the adoption journey. And there's a whole bunch of reasons after that, that someone could kind of just choose like, yeah, I don't think I can do this. And in our case, one of the things we're looking at is the cost of adoption. We, we'd like to think of cost as as a as a consumer cost is just like the, the sticker tag of the thing perhaps but as a as a software team cost is generally some amount of cognitive load you have to like build a mental model of this thing and understand how it's going to interface with your systems you have to have a also some general amount of time and energy spent in integrating with the thing and so those two costs can be really really prohibitive for some teams to actually make use of it. And there's a third one, which is just propensity for change. If teams feel like they're just like, there's too many changes being thrown at them, too many options, they just get overloaded and they just shut down change. And they're just like, they want a period of stability before they start to introduce something new. So there's like, there's some interesting hidden costs there that that might not be as obvious up front. So one of the things that we're looking at is, yeah, this tool is really great, but one of the big costs is you may have to mock out a lot of dependencies if they haven't started to use it already. And you know what, what we're doing there is saying, okay, can we better understand who has like the least amount of work to do? Right now, it could swing from like, you have two weeks of work to you have like three months of work. That's a pretty wide range. And if we just come to a team saying like, hey, you have between two and 12 weeks of work to adopt this thing, I'm probably going to assume it's 12, you know, <laughs> like I'm not like, yeah, there's like, I'm just going to like pessimist. It's the, it's the worst case scenario because, you know, we're all software engineers. That's what, you know, estimates are usually worse than, than, than what they're given. You know, what we can do is maybe, you know, go after the ones who have the simple cases predominantly, get them onboarded and then look for ways to bring that adoption cost down and also maybe lower cognitive load, maybe develop tooling to like automate a portion of the adoption. Anything that we can do to kind of like address those other than the change absorption rate issue, just make it cheaper. We're essentially lowering the price of the product. And that's what, you know, one option we think of is like, you know, potentially a, like a big avenue to unlock further adoption of this thing. Another one is making it more visible to leaders. What type of improvement to, to deploy velocity or change velocity for the team this creates you know, if you can clue in a leader that like, hey, you know, this might take four weeks to like onboard as a system, but once you do, your teams go twice as fast. That's a pretty compelling pitch, you know, and trying to get that information in front of the right people can be a big, big tipping point in driving further adoption. Well, thanks for sharing this story. And I, I love the the advice you've given. And I love the way you're th- explaining how teams should maybe think about, you know, no matter how great of a tool or solution you build, you know, if you don't make it worth it or easy enough to actually adopt it, then adoption is going to struggle. And that makes a lot of sense. Well, on our team, we like to really, is something that I think is like baked into our culture at this point, but we don't think that like, we don't just own building the tool. We own driving adoption of the tool as well. So, you know, our job's not done once we've built the thing. Our job is done once we've, we've seen teams 
adopt it and benefit from them and actually go faster, be happier, more productive employees. And, and, and generally, like everyone's winning. That's when we feel like, okay, we can now we can pat ourselves on the back. We're not allowed to pat ourselves on the back when we've only built the thing. <laughs> I love that. And uh, can definitely share that. I meet with a lot of platform teams that might be celebrating a little prematurely or, you know, are really excited about what they've built, but aren't maybe thinking as deliberately about adoption in the way you've explained. Yeah. And it's, it's scary. I'll, I'll admit it's like, it's really scary when you're basically, because you can't control adoption. You know, we said like, if we're leaning in on decentralized diffusion here, we can't force anyone to adopt our thing. And what we're doing is we're essentially signing up for being held accountable for owning something that we don't control. And that's scary. But that's actually what, that's the exact situation startups are in. I can't force, you know, my customers to start to spend more money on the new feature I'm rolling out. I can't force more customers to show up. It's like, I've, I have to solve a real problem with real like externalities that I don't have direct control of. And that's like, I think that's really, really scary. And, you know, one of the, one of the, kind of leadership principles on the team is like, you just have to, re- you have to recognize that and you have to kind of bring the right mentality of, of support and empathy to the team, you know, to kind of like create almost like psychological safety for saying, yes, go out there and be prepared to hold yourself accountable for things that aren't in your direct control and know that you have a leadership layer that's kind of like recognizing the the scariness of that and, and understand that sometimes we're just going to get it wrong and that's okay. Just like startups get it wrong, we get it wrong too. And being okay with those, you know, as long as we're learning, this isn't necessarily a failure. I think that's like a real important cultural quality to support that type of like risk-seeking mentality that I think is required sometimes. I love that. Well, the last thing I want to talk to you about today is, you know, like we said at the beginning, you you're kind of the startup that's made it. I mean, you've been a part of this thing from, you know, seed stage all the way through multiple rebrandings and expansion of scope. And so I'd love to ask you for your lessons and advice on how other teams can kind of make that leap. To use another startup analogy, it's like, you know, going from your series A to your series B to like IPO. I feel like you you're you're kind of at IPO with where your organization is at today, but like how do you make that leap from you know, working on a tool or a language to becoming rebranding to developer acceleration and then engineering effectiveness. How do you do that? I think a big part of it is where you set your sights. I, I think a lot of our success is probably due to the fact that we had people who are highly ambitious. We had a lot of our leadership team that had startup experience and just wanted to have a big impact. And whenever we started to like achieve some of our ambitions, it very quickly turned into, okay, well, how do we go even higher? <laughs> you know, how do we take this even further? That's a big part because I'll, my general perspective is most tech companies of decent size today are probably under-investing in developer productivity space. I, this feels like a corner we're just in the process of turning. The, just the creation of this podcast is like one of those data points I looked at and like, oh, here's a cool new podcast on this on this topic. Like, I think the... I think the tech industry is starting to get a little more clued in that there's a there's a real strong investment opportunity area there that I think a lot of a lot of us might be neglecting. So chances are if you're on one of these teams, there's a lot of untapped value just waiting to be realized and your team could be the one to go and make a, a strong case for that and and what that takes. Another one would be prioritize measurement. Measurement is so important 
because the best you can do to kind of like creating that a, approximate for a revenue stream that you'll never have, you'll never have actual revenue. You know, maybe there's an interesting business idea there. <laughs> they start to charge software engineers for your service. That's not what I'm interested in, but you're never going to have that kind of like real tangible rubber hits the road, like dollars and cents measurement. So you have to find ways to, to make up for that. Also, having alignment with the leadership group on, on when things are getting better, when they're getting worse, when they're stagnating. I think another one of your podcasts actually that I want to say it was Dropbox, where they talked about the value of that and, and creating a shared understanding with leadership of what the value potential is and what, what the right amount of investment is. I would suspect that most organizations are underinvesting. That's the probably the tool that's going to unlock further investment. If you can't measure it, you're basically can only use rhetoric at that point. And the problem with rhetoric on top of just, you know, you're making it up is anyone could steal that. Anyone at some point can come in with a stronger rhetoric and challenge what you're doing. And unless you have the data to go back to, it's who's whoever is the best salesman is going to win. Yeah, well, I, I love the insights you've shared and completely agree that there's an enormous opportunity for impact that these teams have the potential to have and love the tips that you've shared to, to help folks hopefully be able to continue growing their scope and impact in the same way that you've been able to. Really enjoyed this conversation today, Jonathan. Uh, I think a lot of leaders are going to find it really inspiring. I love the way you think about adoption and all the tips you've shared today. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah. If I can give one last parting word, it would be, you know, I know I focused a lot on, you know, myself in this, but I, I would, I'm standing on the shoulder of giants of other parts of the team, other leaders, other brilliant engineers. So I just want to make sure that this is not all me. <laughs> I'm I'm just the one on this podcast. This is a very much a a group effort, and there's a lot of amazing people that if if they weren't involved, I don't think we have, would have been nearly as successful as we are. So, just a thank you to all the people who've been part of that journey. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. It's been awesome. Thank you. Thank you.